This program is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Judy was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1948. She graduated from Watertown High School. Any Watertown natives here? No? Um, and then earned a BA degree from Radcliffe College in 1970. In 1971, Judy Nersidgian joined a group of women who had first met during a women's liberation conference in Boston. The group had produced a newsprint booklet entitled Our Bodies Ourselves that helped launch the women's health movement of the 1970s. Um, Judina Sajin contributed a chapter for the first Simon & Schuster edition of the book published in 1973. She was among the 12 women who officially incorporated the Boston Women's Health Book Collective and is co-author of all editions of the book. During the following years, she became more centrally involved with the organization's groundbreaking work educating women and others about health care and sexuality issues. The hallmark, the hallmark of Our Bodies Ourselves, the combination of well-researched medical information accessible language and the personal experiences of women put women's health and sexuality in a radically new political and social context. The book is now in its eighth edition and has sold more than four million copies and has been not only translated but culturally adapted um, into 24 languages. In 2001, Judy became the executive director of the organization, um, which began to use the name of Our Bodies Ourselves. Um, Judy is a member of the Board of Directors of the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, the National Women's Health Network, and the Public Responsibility in Medicine and Research. She's a member of numerous advisory and editorial boards. She's an internationally renowned speaker and has appeared on many radio and television programs, including NBC Nightly News, Phil Donahue's show, and that um, pinnacle of success for any feminist, Oprah. Um, perhaps the most illustrious thing that Judy Narsigian does is serve on the advisory board of Suffolk University's own Master of Arts in Women's Health program, where she also teaches the course in women's health advocacy. Um, before I turn the microphone over to Judy, um, I just wanted to share on a personal note that for me, Our Bodies Ourselves was what opened my eyes to women's health, which many, many, many years later has become my own um, area of expertise and my own field. And I was thinking of Judy when I was watching the last um, debate of the presidential candidates, did anybody see that last Obama-McCain debate? Um, I started to think about how important punctuation is when um, one of the candidates, I won't say who, talked about women's health, in quotation marks, and I was just thinking about Judy, who generally, rather than quotation marks, ends the phrase women's health with a big exclamation point. Judy? <laughs> oh, that's okay, I don't need it. Well, thank you, Susan, and I bring greetings from other co-founders, our board, our staff. Uh, next year will mark the 40th anniversary of that uh, famous or infamous conference that was held at Emanuel College, not all that far from here, where the workshop that ultimately became Our Bodies Ourselves took place. So we have quite a history right now, almost four decades of um, activism and over the years I have to say that increasingly we've worked more and more with men, with young men, um, with, with practitioners in various fields to collaborate on a whole host of projects. All of these kinds of things are at our website, ourbodiesourselves.org. Practically anything I mentioned today is covered in somewhat greater depth at our website and we invite you to go there. We invite you to sign up for our very 
uh, lively blog put out every day by Rachel Walden, um, who's a medical librarian from Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, and Christine Cupaiolo, who operates out of Chicago and who used to do the blog for Ms. Magazine called Ms. Musings. They're both very talented and very good at what they do, and already have 12,000 regular subscribers, and this is simply a word-of-mouth activity. So, if you want to stay informed on all manner of women's health issues, uh, do sign up for the blog. I'm going to touch upon an array of issues today that focus particularly on um, subjects that have been that well addressed by the media. And, it, and not just advertising, but also television, movies, whatever. But in many cases, it's newspaper reporting. And one of the dilemmas we face right now is that we don't have the cadre of investigative journalists we used to have because newspapers and many media organs have just had to cut back mercilessly. The, the funds are just not there. They don't have the new staff that they used to have, and they rely a lot more on PR kits from companies who have a product to sell or service to sell, and much less on their own investigative reporting, and that's become a problem so that you don't often get the conflict of interest that underlies the story, but it's there. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. What are some of our key challenges when it comes to the media portrayals? Uh, well, certainly when it comes to medical research, we often get sound bites that are inaccurate or incomplete, and this happens anywhere, particularly with television, sometimes radio. Less so with the print media, because they have a little bit more space. Then the media often endorse our societal tendencies to embrace the quick fix or the pill for every ill approach. And certainly when you see the level of drug use, prescription drug use in this country right now, um, we're certainly on that trajectory at the moment. Increasing influence of the pharmaceutical industry over physician prescribing practices as well as the educational and advertising materials that are aimed at us, the patient or the consumer. Um, these are um, actually, I think, some of the most important influences that affect our behavior, our understanding, the level of information we have. Um, and this is a place where it really pays to look at the source of information when you're at a website. Who funds it? Who's behind it? There are a lot of what we call astroturf organizations that put out nice-looking websites that look like some nice consumer group has, has created the material, done the research, when in fact, there's um, an industry interest behind it. Um, it's very hard to find trustworthy information, and so that's why we say know the source of your information, look out for conflicts of interest. Uh, if you don't find any information about where the website comes from, who funds it, who are the experts that contribute the information, be suspicious. You should be able to find that pretty easily. We utilize a lot of non-commercial websites prepared by those who know how to evaluate the quality of the research that they cite. There's a lot of research out there that's junk research, not well-designed, methods are poor, and you don't want to be citing them to make a case. And in, in some cases, we do refer to commercial websites because they happen to be good. Not all commercial websites are bad. And then never base your decision upon one source of information, whether um, it's a physician, if you're making a big choice and it seems to be um, pretty consequential, go on, get another opinion, do some reading, use more than one source, particularly on the web. Okay, I'm going to talk about childbirth for a few minutes because this is an area where we certainly have seen a tremendous amount of distortion, misinformation, and a portrayal of birth as an accident waiting to happen pretty much everywhere you look. So now we've got this growing climate of doubt and fear. 
resulting from media distortions rather than a climate of confidence, which is what we tried to create in the latest book we put out, Our Bodies, Ourselves, Pregnancy, and Birth. I also want to say that um, it's very difficult to um, avoid some of the wonderfully funny things that, um, and, and slapstick sort of moments you can have in television and the movie, movies when it comes to birth. One group of medical students just decided to look at all the movies, all the TV shows, uh, mainstream media coverage of birth portrayals, and they, they found that 90% were distorted, about 10% were accurate. But among the distortions were a lot of very funny scenes, which caused a number of belly laughs. Now, these are some disturbing trends that reflect um, failures to utilize best practices in maternity care. These are actually beautifully summarized in a landmark report that just came out about three weeks ago. It's a joint effort of Childbirth Connection in New York City, the Millbank Memorial Fund, which has been doing major health policy reports for more than 100 years, and the Reforming States Group. It's called Evidence-Based Maternity Care, What It Is and What It Can Achieve. You can see it free online as a PDF file. You can order it free from the Millbank Memorial Fund. And they were concerned about a number of trends in childbearing, but the failure to use what we now know to be best practices was one of their big concerns because the costs go up as a result. Uh, satisfaction goes down. We don't actually get any better results for it. So we've got rising cesarean section rates, falling VBAC rates, that's vaginal birth after cesarean, rising rates of premature births, um, this is in part due to the increased use of induction, inducing a labor prematurely without medical reason and also scheduling cesareans. Uh, we've also got rising rates of unnecessary medical interventions that are increasingly shown to be associated with harms. And then, of course, despite all the valiant efforts in the American Academy of Pediatrics and the efforts of the federal government trying to push all of the information we know now about the advantages of breastfeeding. In some parts of the United States, breastfeeding rates are falling. Um, and I think there are multiple reasons for this. We can maybe talk about that later. So the National Center for Health Statistics tracked um, the cesarean section rate, and it does it every year pretty much, noted in 2004 that um, the rate had risen 6% to 29.1% of all births, which is the highest rate that they had ever reported then. In 2007, the cesarean rate rose again to 31.2%. It's actually climbed since then. And what this doesn't tell you is the variability um, from one hospital to the other. In take Boston alone, if you go to our large teaching hospitals that have substantial midwifery services, and nurse midwives are known to have much lower cesarean rates. It's not just about having lower risk women, it's about the way they conduct birth and um, pregnancy and labor. So if you went to Boston Medical Center, if you went to Mass General Hospital, if you went to Brigham and Women's where you have sizable nurse midwifery services, you'll see cesarean rates down around 30%. If you go to Beth Israel Deaconess where there are no midwives, maybe one, but only part-time to speak of right now, the cesarean rate is already past 40%. And uh, in hospitals I've been visiting recently in Houston, and Dallas, and other parts of the country, the rates are at 50% in some cases. Uh, in the hospitals that serve primarily low-income women where they do routinely do VBACs, vaginal births after cesareans, they are um, often um, hospitals that have some of the lowest cesarean rates. I was just at the largest maternity service in the country, which is Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. I think about 13,000 births a year, and I have never seen such a huge operation with an enormous triage. And they, the women who come in do not get to choose who their caregivers are going to be. They are assigned on the basis of the level of problem that they uh, anticipate or that they have. 
Uh, and what happens is the midwifery service ends up with a 4 to 7% cesarean rate, even the overall hospital rate is about 23%. They have pretty outstanding results given that they are dealing with women who are, quote, socioeconomically at high risk pretty universally. So these are largely poor women in the Dallas, Texas area. So you can actually um, provide care in a way that's evidence-based if your leadership really pays attention to that. Well, why is the rising cesarean section rate a national crisis? Well, we know now that there is significant increased risk for mothers, especially with repeat cesarean births. The most significant one I want to mention is something called placenta accreta, where the placenta grows into the wall of the uterus. Um, while I was in Dallas, an OBGYN herself, um, who was having her fourth cesarean, died as a result of placenta accreta, where the placenta grew into the bladder. And she had three of her most skilled surgical colleagues trying to save her life at her bed, at her side. Um, another healthcare worker within the previous year had also lost her life at, with her third repeat cesarean. With each subsequent birth, uh, each subsequent cesarean section, the risk of placenta accreta goes up. Used to be rare, but obstetricians who saw one to two a year now tell me they see one to two a month. And these are scary because being in the hospital doesn't necessarily make that critical difference between life and death. Uh, there's also an increased rate of preterm births as a result of cesareans. And ironically, because more women have, are having cesareans and they don't always have the family members to be with them and they're basically recovering from major abdominal surgery, they're not always in a position to have what we call rooming in, the baby with them 24-7, which promotes bonding and nursing and all the things that we know to be good from study after study. So there were hospitals that had done away with the regular uh, nurseries. They only had rooming in and they had a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit for the babies who got into trouble. And those hospitals that had done away with the, the um, nurseries are now restoring them because there are now so many women who, although their babies are healthy, they are not able to keep the babies with them 24-7. Now back in 1989, the Institute of Medicine did a report which um, summarized the reasons for the rising cesarean section rate then. 30% because of abnormal or difficult labor, something we call dystocia. 25 to 30% due to repeat cesarean section. Um, 10 to 25% due to breech presentation. That's when the baby's coming out feet, fir feet first or butt first. And in the old days, many breech births were allowed to progress vaginally. But nowadays, because the physicians are simply not skilled to do breech births, most of them, almost all of them, are done by cesarean. And of course, fetal distress, which is a very good reason to do a cesarean. If a baby's in distress, you want that baby out as fast as possible. But that's not a major reason for the rising cesarean rate. Current reasons for the rising cesarean rates uh, really have to do primarily with changes in obstetrical practice. The more repeat cesareans, the more refusals to allow VBACs. That's something we're working on right now in our organization with about 50 or 60 obstetricians, family practice physicians, and midwives, and public health officials across the country who are trying to reverse the decisions in some of the um, community hospitals and even some city hospitals to deny women this choice of VBAC despite all the evidence um, um, to the contrary. Concerns about malpractice, that's a big one. And I think that's what drove the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists not that long ago to issue a recommendation that hospitals only do VBACs if they had surgical and anesthesiology presence within the facility 24-7. Now, for many things hospitals do, um, they have the surgical 
um, expertise off-site but nearby, the same with the anesthesiologist. They can be called up and they're there in within minutes. Um, VBAC really is much safer, in fact, than many of these things that go on in hospitals without 24-7 presence of an anesthesiologist, but it's primarily because of malpractice that um, ACOG wanting to be on the safe side recommended this and some of the lawyers in the hospital said to the physicians who were doing a tremendous job and getting good outcomes of course, um, you can't do it anymore. And they felt this was an absolute travesty because it forced women to be cut open against their will, not only no medical necessity but an increase of possible medical harm as a result. So there's a lot of stir within the medical profession about this issue of feedback at the moment. And then, of course, we have this strange phenomenon, which is that we've got more advocates of medically unnecessary cesareans with all that we know about the increased risks of surgical birth. And this comes from within the profession as well, it's, um, particularly among younger women obstetricians that I've met who do not fully appreciate some of the potential risks they're taking. In some cases, they know they're only going to have one child, and they know that the risk of that first birth um, in, a, in, a, in a really safe situation um, there's going to be no placenta accreta because that usually comes from adhesions and scarring tissue from a previous cesarean. Um, they feel much more confident about going ahead with it. But you never know how many babies you want to have. You may think you only want to have one. It seems to me not a very far-sighted way to proceed about your decision-making. So the VBAC rate has fallen quite a bit, and this is one of the things we have to reverse right now. It should um, really return to a much higher rate. Right now you have communities where you hardly have any VBACs. There are also uh, communities where women have protested. They've marched uh, around the hospital. They've gotten into the newspapers. One famous story of Fredericksburg Hospital in Maryland made it into USA Today and the New York Times. And it took two years, but the women in that community restored VBAC as an option for women there. I think that this famous meeting that the National Institutes of Health had um, Caesareans by maternal request back in 2006 ultimately became one of the reasons for what we definitely think is a rise in what we call maternal request caesareans without a medical reason. The media coverage of this meeting was so distorted and so misleading, and I made a collection of clips, that the public that didn't go to the meeting, and I did go to the meeting, it was a three-day meeting, would have no idea of the serious issues that were raised about cesarean section, uh, whether it's a first cesarean or a second or third cesarean. Uh, it, it made the choice of cesarean section electively a reasonable one, not one that would be associated with additional harms um, for mother, which I think is well documented, but even for baby. And one of the neonatal, uh, the fetal maternal uh, medicine experts presented a fair amount of data on the importance of coming down the vaginal canal for the lung development issues for the baby. Other things as well. But it was very interesting to see him present a fair amount of very solid data on this um, question of whether the passage through the vaginal canal had specific benefits um, or not, and had that hardly mentioned. In fact, I don't think it was mentioned at all by the media. Before the NIH meeting, the Childbirth Connection in New York City 
prepared this listening to mothers survey. They did listening to mothers and then listening to mothers too. And they found uh, before this NIH meeting that there was no widespread clamoring for a medically unindicated cesarean section. This was a, a Harris Interactive poll done with a scientific sample, and they found that 56% of women who wanted a vaginal birth after having had a cesarean said a doctor denied them that option. And then one out of every four women polled felt that they had uh, been pushed into having the surgery. Only one in 252 women said she went in asking for a cesarean section. Um, that was not um, a theme that they saw. Now I'm going to go on to cosmetic surgery because you've got plenty out there. You've got extreme makeover shows. You've got ads in papers from cosmetic surgery repractices. You've got uh, all kinds of um, strange websites out there. In fact, um, right now, breast implants solely for cosmetic purposes are increasing in popularity despite substantial risks associated with both silicone and saline implants. And most of this is a result of product placement in sitcoms and movies, uh, uh, talk shows, advertising. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's grown substantially in the last few years. I'll get to the statistics in a minute, but first I want to say that most of the public will never see the booklet prepared by our own U.S. Food and Drug Administration with our own tax dollars, which includes pho photographs and descriptions of adverse implant outcomes, such as disfigurement, capsular contracture, that's when the breast becomes hard and misshapen, and deflation. You can go to this website and you can um, see the whole booklet. won't show you the pictures you'll get all over the web from implant manufacturers or from cosmetic surgeons' websites. You can see a whole host of nice-looking breasts and you can pick the ones you want. You won't see a picture of capsular contracture, generally. This is from the FDA booklet. This is the same 27-year-old woman after her painful implants were removed. Some women decide to try to go again, um, get another set of implants. Others decide that they're not going to go through it again. This is an example of necrosis in a mastectomy patient with implants for one week. And then this is the, uh, what a woman looked like after removal of leaking silicone implants. You can't get all the silicone out, and it migrates to other parts of the body somewhat in many cases. There is, by the way, um, well, I'll get to it in a minute, the breast augmentation statistics from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons show this increase, uh, about 55% increase between 2000 and 2006. I believe the figures for last year, 2007, are creeping up towards 400,000. We'll have those stats very soon. Um, I think they're about 380,000. And they're going <coughs> to continue to rise as long as the promotion um, is in place through all sort of corners of the media. Very little is said about um, the risks. And now, of course, breast, aug breast augmentation. This is solely for cosmetic purposes, not for reconstruction after breast cancer and um, surgery. This, it's always been among the top five surgical procedures, but now it's number one. That happened last year. And then if you do as I did back in the March of 2007 and just do a quick internet search to see what people are saying about breast implants, you will find some fascinating things Mostly articles that talk about like being set free, quoting someone who says they were trapped in a bad body before, now they're set free in a nice body. This more mommy, <clears throat> more women having mommy makeovers article was republished in dozens of local papers, even though it originally was in a larger paper. Very little said about the risks and the downsides. An interesting story here, um, one of the young men who was at a um, 
session we had in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin came up afterwards and said that he had pleaded with his girlfriend not to get breast implants because um, he had done a little research and, um, and by the way, he said she had a terrific body, she was just fine the way she was and he, um, her response was, well, I'm doing it anyway because everyone in my sorority is. And he said, I, that's when I learned that the cultural messages are a lot more powerful than what your boyfriend thinks. And, uh, and he was quite concerned uh, about her health and well-being um, and also about the, what he, from his point of view, was a waste of money as well. This documentary is being shown in colleges across the country now. I know at UT Dallas, um, University of Texas in Dallas, they had one of the longest discussions after a film was shown, about an hour-long discussion with the filmmaker, and she has been to Boston. She was at the Museum of Fine Arts. I think she was at Boston University. I'm sure she'd be willing to come back, but um, both her discussion of, of the process of making this documentary, following a woman who's happy and a woman who's not happy, um, taping the FDA hearings, and letting the surgeons who performed the surgery for both of these women speak um, about their own perspectives was a real eye-opener and uh, generated some really important conversation, both about the medical aspects of breast implants, but also um, the societal shoulds that we all experience, mostly coming from the media. Now this is also quite interesting. A survey by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons themselves showed that nearly 40% of their patients believe they should have been more proactive in learning about potential side effects and complications before surgery. That suggests that informed consent or the amount of information they were given was not beforehand, was not good enough. Here's another place where we get plenty of advertising and plenty of um, you know, promotion of products, but not that much about the risks. Uh, a, a very large coalition of teachers' unions, um, uh, health worker unions, um, some of the largest unions in the country, actually, with their California um, divisions, <coughs> um, environmental groups, breast cancer action, uh, community groups, very large uh, list of organizations decided to uh, work on taking the information that had been gathered by the Environmental Working Group, this report, Skin Deep, they had been preparing before they even published it on the internet, and they went to the California legislature to demand that cosmetics that had potentially problematic substances um, be divulged to the California State Health Department, and they did succeed. Uh, this particular report I want to mention because they've transformed it into a very user-friendly plug-in, the cosmetic product you use, uh, and if it's got any harmful substances or potentially harmful substances, it'll tell you, and then it gives you alternatives by brand name that you can use that do the very same thing. So it does the research for you that you might have to do for yourself. It's not about not using cosmetics, it's about using safer cosmetics. Uh, and in particular, they're looking at suspected carcinogens and reproductive toxins. Now, this Safe Cosmetics Act in California um, was a, a clever orchestration of organizations that did not let the uh, news about their organizing reach the media until they had talked to a critical mass of legislators. And this is very important because they got to them before the cosmetics manufacturers and their trade group was able to lobby effectively to reverse the commitments that legislators already had made to passing um, this Safe Cosmetics Act. So since January of 
last year, um, the, the manufacturers in that state have to respond, divulge any product ingredients that cause cancer or birth defects. It's a very important right to know law. These are just some examples of, of chemicals found in common substances that um, have been shown to be um, risky in one way or another. Phthalates have gotten some uh, amount of attention in the media, and um, but there's so many things that have phthalates in them, parabens too, the shampoos, things like that. NotTooPretty.org is another organization that's been taking some of the research done by scientists, both at Environmental Working Group and elsewhere. Now, talc in talcum powder um, was shown to, years ago, increase the risk of ovarian cancer in women who used it in the genital area. And there was a steep drop in talcum powder use. And then all of a sudden, within the last five, six years, people, um, healthcare workers have noticed when they ask that women are using it again. So now we have to get back to educating the public. And that because it's old news, it's not a new study, um, some members of the media don't want to go revisit it. They want to only talk about new studies. But we have to remember that when we've got good evidence about something, and even if it's an old story, we haven't been talking about it enough, and people are now engaging in a harmful practice. We've got to cover it in the media once again. Um, um, this other issue about flame retardants is very important because we have documented, not just here in Michigan, but elsewhere, that when you're accidentally exposed to these chemicals, you can start your period on average um, a, a year earlier. Now, that's a significant impact. Many of these chemicals act like hormones. We call them xenoestrogens inside the human body. They act, um, these plastics, um, these sort of xenoestrogens lock into estrogen receptor cells, and they have been implicated in, um, in a cancer causation or a cancer promotion role. Sometimes you can't tell one from the other, and that's a very important distinction that scientists try to make, promoting versus causing. Obviously, you can read labels. Uh, you can use all-natural um, product ingredients, and now there are more and more websites that show you how to use very cheap cooking ingredients, like safflower oil and olive oil and oatmeal for the kinds of things that you buy expensive products for. Now, DTC advertising, these are prescription drugs um, that are advertised directly to you uh, that didn't occur before 1997. Only ads for prescription drugs were being at nurses and doctors and healthcare workers. But if you watch TV, you see a lot of these, and some of them are pretty funny, especially the ads for, you know, Cialis and Viagra and Levitra. Well, we do get misinformation because the benefits are usually overstated and risks are usually understated. Yes, there are FDA warning letters issued to manufacturers, but after the ads run, they often don't have to run corrective ads. Usually, withdrawal of the ad is the only penalty, not a cash penalty. So the ads are geared primarily to selling more drug product. That's why we see so many drug ads. Um, they're not about educating the user, though you'll see that as an argument. And many, many... Um, uh, medical school professors, journals of uh, editors of major medical journals like the British BMJ Journal, Lancet, and two past editors of the New England Journal of Medicine who actually live locally have been on record written books about this problem. It's, it's not a small issue. And the ads do work, and these highly advertised drugs, um, you know, accompanied by promotional campaigns to physicians, sell extremely well. Now, does anyone know the top-selling prescription drug in the world? Anyone would take a guess? 
Well, at least nobody said Viagra. That usually is the first thing I hear, and you know, it, it always intrigues me because at this point we don't have a Viagra-like drug for women, so you eliminated half the population that might use it. So it's not likely to be the top selling. Well, it's Lipitor. Um, now, the whole class of statin drugs, these are the drugs that lower cholesterol levels. Um, very popular, very highly promoted. Uh, now, one of the reasons I include this example is that for women, we have a slightly different profile than we do for men. And for women, we don't have the best quality research that um, we do have for some men that would demonstrate a mortality benefit if you take any statin drug, including Lipitor, solely for the purposes of lowering your cholesterol level. It only, um, we only have demonstrable benefit if you already have heart disease or diabetes. You have an existing problem for which um, having an elevated cholesterol level is going to um, cause uh, some clear trouble. Simply having an elevated cholesterol level is not necessarily an, a, a good reason to take um, any of these statin drugs. And it's important to think about you don't stand to benefit on the one hand, and you also do stand to be harmed. Very substantial minority of people who take statin drugs have um, a set of problems that um, amount to things like brain fog, memory loss, loss of balance, muscle atrophy, weakness in your legs. Uh, these are fairly common side effects. And one of the researchers at UCSD, University of California in San Diego, who's been following um, how physicians react when their patients complain of these problems, has demonstrated that physicians tend often to discount what patients say, thinking that it cannot be the statin drug. And this is ironic because it's, it's in the patient package insert that you get. So why would you discount it as a real cause, a real result of taking the drug when the manufacturer itself recognizes it? So we've got a problem here with the overuse, particularly among women, of the statin drugs. Now, I want to make a point that drugs can be very useful, but maybe pills for prevention are not the best approach. And we need to put more emphasis on a view of public health that stresses primary prevention, identifying and eliminating the disease-causing agents in our food, water, and air. Public health folks do that. The media spend very little time looking at these kinds of issues. And we do endorse the precautionary principle of public health. It has many corollaries, but it's just simple, you know, primary statement is when an activity raises threats of harm to the environment or human health, precautionary measures should be taken, even if some cause and effect relationships are not fully established. So it's developed by the Science and Environmental Health Network, which is a, a global network of researchers. Talk a little bit about female dysfunction, sexual dysfunction. Um, is it a serious problem requiring primary primarily biomedical solutions, or, or do we need a different approach? In 99, Pfizer, which is a very large drug company, had consultants analyze one question from a survey and produced a very simplistic conclusion that got into the press big time. Many, many articles suggesting that 43% of American women suffer from sexual dysfunction. Now, of course, many things were included in this, you know, women whose Partners had to travel a lot, so they weren't happy they weren't around. You know, women who were, like, not having sex because they didn't want to for a period of time. Um, there are all kinds of reasons. Um, and some of the women weren't even um, necessarily unhappy, but they weren't having sex at the moment, and they did have a partner. Uh, the um, booklet that they prepared, 43% um, of women have sexual dysfunction, are you one of them? was the beginning of what we call a disease awareness campaign. You prime the pump for a drug product that you haven't yet produced. 
um, and they were using this statistic to help make women think that it's, if there are any problems, you're not having an orgasm, you're not sexually satisfied, it must be that you need a drug. Not that, you know, you got to figure out where your clitoris is or it takes longer for you to be stimulated, you got to show your partner where, you know, parts of your body are. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why people don't have sexual satisfaction. And it isn't necessarily because they don't have a, a device. There are also devices or drug um, that would solve the problem. There's a lot of articles, some of which were very good. This was the front um, cover story on the Washington Post magazine a few years ago, The Hunt for Pink Viagra. And it did have some very good content with some cautionary um, language. Of course, that came a little later in the article, and people who just looked at the headlines probably thought, oh, well, we're just going to have a Viagra for women soon. There's a very wonderful collection of researchers who are sharing their findings, uh, posting what they're doing in terms of research, and they speak at conferences, and you can see um, the fruits of their labor at this fsd-alert.org website. Menopause, um, every day 5,000 women in the U.S. enter menopause, the so-called change of life, and the media are a big source of what we think about menopause. Um, a lot of caricatures, a lot of um, you know very funny scenes of women having horrible hot flashes or sweats. Um, but more um, disturbing, I, I find, are the um, depictions of menopausally aged women who are erratic, not to be trusted, loony, um, you know, behaving a little bit outlandishly. <coughs> well, what influences our thinking? Well, certainly the media messages. Um, there's a lot of worship of youthfulness and other characteristics um, that suggest to us it's not okay to grow old. So as soon as we hit midlife, we're much more prone to ads for cosmetic surgery or sleeping pills or um, whatever uh, is out there being pushed. Uh, obviously, conversations with other women do influence our thinking as well. Now, the media often ignore and minimize the non-medical approaches to dealing with menopausal discomforts and problems such as sleep disruption. So we're finding recently over-promotion of prescription sleep aids rather than a more low-tech approach to helping people get a good night's sleep. It doesn't mean that on rare occasions you don't need a heavy-duty sleep aid, but for most women there are other vehicles besides using what are addictive drugs. No matter what anyone tells you, they are addictive. They, they say now you develop withdrawal um, syndrome. They don't call it addiction, but it's the same thing. So here are some alternatives to prescription drugs for sleep problems, which don't get much attention, but there's actually good research on some of these things. Yoga and exercise have been shown to help with sleep problems, in some cases a little bit with hot flashes, but certainly getting a better night's sleep. Avoiding caffeine is a big one. Uh, many women, as they hit menopause, even women who had three, four, five cups a day of coffee, they find that they can't do it anymore. Um, um, I love coffee, but if I have it past the morning, I'll be up till 3 a.m. So it's, you know, it's my treat in the morning, but I won't do it at 3 in the afternoon. Um, the things do change. We can respond very differently to the same foods and drinks that we used to eat uh, without any effects. So deep breathing, this is so simple and so low tech, but actually studies show that deep breathing, massage at bedtime, and even sleeping in a cool room can have a significant impact on your ability to sleep well. Now you have to imagine if you're having hot flashes, you don't want to be in a hot room. That's not going to help you at all. Now these are just common things women and practitioners recommend for dealing with hot flashes, using fans, layered clothing, put your palms or bare feet on a cold surface, 
one woman discovered this clever idea of putting a coal pack under the pillow, so when she woke up hot, she just turned the pillow over and her cheek against the cold pillow, um, cooled her down right away and she went back to sleep. Doesn't always work for everyone, but for many people, these things do work. Um, less caffeine, less spicy foods, and then of course the wine, uh, the red wine in particular was a blow to many people who love good wine, but that could cause really intense hot flashes. So, you get a lot of ads for bone density screening. These are now pitched um, at women around 50 years of age. That's when they're going into menopause. They might have just gone through. They may be heading for it. They may be in perimenopause. Um, and now increasingly, they've um, encouraged women who have this um, uh, situation in which they have lost some bone density. But this is not pathology, and this happens for everyone. And you remember, you can have less dense bones that are still strong and still not likely to fracture. But they're convincing women who have this classification osteopenia to get on drugs at very young ages, even though we've got evidence-based studies. Um, Oregon Health and Science University did a big study for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Um, you can see it on the internet. There's hard copies. But that's not what gets advertised. And what happens is you get a lot of over-promotion of some of the drugs like Fosamax at a premature point in a woman's life. Merck, which produces Fosamax, that's one of the alendronates um, that's used um, in, um, around to deal with osteoporosis, was stopped by the FDA from using the claim that menopause is the single most important cause of osteoporosis, which is what they wanted to do in their ads. But sometimes they do get away with ads um, and add content that escapes FDA review, and after the fact, we have to fix it. This was a major, major failure of the media. Um, and this has to do with a fairly significant um, practice, and it affects large numbers of women. Um, we had U.S. federal data from the late 90s that showed 78% of women, 45 to 64, who have had a hysterectomy, also had healthy ovaries removed, even though most of these women were not at particular risk of developing ovarian cancer. You know, there are hereditary factors here, and now we have uh, breast cancer and ovarian cancer genetic testing, which is um, made available to some individuals, though it's highly expensive in this country. The one reason many people don't choose to even think about it. But the um, um, the figure was pretty uh, pretty stark. That you know, three quarter, more than three quarters of these women who had hysterectomy had healthy ovaries removed. Dr. William Parker, who's out at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Um, did a study with colleagues to, to basically confirm that what they had been doing in gynecology was the right thing. He was pretty sure he was going to be vindicated because every one of them was, you know, the time a woman's having hysterectomy saying, let's just take out your ovaries. What is it but an organ that's going to get ovarian cancer? Um, no benefit possibly could be conferred by keeping your ovaries. Well, this is what they found. For 10,000 women aged 50 to 54 years old who underwent a hysterectomy, uh, with oophorectomy, that's when the ovaries are removed. There will be 47 fewer cases of ovarian cancer by the time these women reach 80 when compared with a similar group who keep their ovaries, but there's a big but. This oophorectomy group will suffer 838 additional deaths from coronary heart disease as well as 158 more deaths from hip fractures. Now these numbers reflect women who do not have estrogen therapy. There's a smaller survival benefit to keeping the ovaries in women who continue to take estrogen, but of course estrogen increases somewhat the risk of breast cancer and other problems there, so you wouldn't take estrogen um, unless you needed to. So there he was facing the fact that, you know, they would save a few cases of ovarian cancer and prematurely kill, 
you know, about a thousand women out of ten thousand, and that did not sit well. So he went to the media. He got a little bit of attention, um, but very, um, very minor attention in the scheme of things. And the practice did not change in, among gynecologists. He is now working reanalyzing data from the famous Nurses Health Study. Uh, they're about to publish, and they found an even more stark contrast. So they, they've been vindicated once again that they're right. Um, now. The, because media attention has been minimal, so women themselves don't say something, and gynecologists have not, for some reason, decided to follow the literature on this one. The practice of removing healthy ovaries without adequate justification does continue. Now I'm going to move on to a, a subject that's much, much closer to your age range. Uh, how many of you have seen ads for egg donors in a college paper? Okay. They're pretty much all over the country now. And um, there is uh, an incredibly um, positive feeling that comes with donating eggs for an infertile couple who cannot, um, um, well, in some cases, a woman can't produce eggs. In other cases, um, she's a bit older, and now there's fairly good evidence that women with younger eggs, the younger eggs do better in terms of becoming fertilized, and the embryos do better when they're implanted. So increasingly, IVF clinics are working with uh, brokers to try to um, attract more and more younger women who are um, offering um, themselves for these procedures from anywhere from four or five thousand up to a hundred thousand. It depends on what your characteristics are. If the ad is seeking someone with a certain set of characteristics and you've got them, you can often command a much higher price. That's frowned upon in general, but it does happen. Uh, so we got into this, well we've been concerned all along about the risks of multiple egg extraction procedures, particularly, to, it's a multiple stage procedure, which I'll get into in a minute. But we weren't, and we registered our concerns. We opposed, for example, third party reimbursement mandates for IVF that involved these kinds of procedures, which were very experimental. Uh, and this was back in the 80s. And the research that needs to be done with some of these drugs has not been done still to this day. So we got more actively involved when researchers in the embryo stem cell field came to us and said, you know, we're very eager to use embryos. We'll work with otherwise discarded embryos from IVF clinics, but um, we're very concerned that there's now going to be a huge push to get young women to donate eggs solely for somatic cell nuclear transfer. This is something called research cloning or embryo cloning. And they felt that the the risks to the women were not worth it, that we weren't further enough, far enough along with embryo stem cell research to warrant this. So uh, they're not um, in the realm of education and advocacy, so they asked us to get active, and we did. And we continue to um, bring this information to Congress and other places. This is just an ad for a UC Berkeley um, student or someone in the area to come uh, provide eggs. See, you had to have SAT scores around 1275 or high ACT. Um, you had to um, uh, be a graduate under 30. You had to be athletic. And that if they were um, giving $80,000 to you or the charity of your choice, uh, with the understanding that many people do this for, you know, in many for altruistic purposes. So here's the extraction procedure summarized quickly. You suppress ovulation, then you hyperstimulate the ovaries, and you get your mature eggs, multiple follicles. You extract these eggs. Um, and I, what I want to do is just quickly um, show you that our concerns largely surround this first stage, which have to do with suppressing ovulation, putting you into a temporary state of menopause. 
as a young person so that then you can have controlled hyperstimulation of the ovaries to get multiple eggs. And there, there are lots of side effects of Lupron, luprolide acetate, which is the most common drug used to suppress ovarian function. But the one, the, the, the particular um, um, effects, negative effects that I want to underscore are ones that many women have reported continued fairly long after they discontinued the drug. Uh, things like um, a kind of um, joint pain, severe joint pain, like a thralgia. Uh, sometimes a, 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 an emotional instability and loss of libido that didn't come back, even though they were told it would. Muscular pain, bone, bone pain, um, and, and swelling of certain parts of the body. And then certainly muscle weakness and vision abnormalities. These were common things um, reported by women who found one another on the internet in the 90s. They call themselves the Lupron Victims Network. That website has since been taken down with a lot of speculation about why. Uh, but many of us actually collected, before it got taken down, many of the stories of these women. There were hundreds of women who found one another on the internet. And now, in college circles, there are women who've had problems, women who haven't, and they're talking among one another. And a student at Emerson decided to do a film called All in One Basket, um, not as broad-reaching as she'd like it to have been because it had to be short and it was a student project, but there are certainly um, women now thinking about doing a much more uh, ambitious uh, project um, looking at this kind of issue. Hyperstimulation of the ovaries is something that we do understand pretty well, and there is one serious, particularly serious effect, but if you monitor a woman closely and you catch it soon, um, she won't die. There are a few deaths, but I think it's because they didn't monitor her closely enough. It's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, this comes with the second set of drugs you use to hyperstimulate ovaries to get multiple eggs. And I'm just going to skip over that. Um, extraction is just minor surgery. It can be a little painful, but that's not where the safety concerns really lie. This is where we really are um, in deep, you know, we're, we, a deep morass. We really do not know anything about long-term effects of many of the drugs, especially uh, luprolide acetate and also another drug similar to Lupron called Antipodes, <coughs> which does have FDA approval. Ironically, Lupron has no FDA approval for this particular use. It has approval for endometriosis treatment, for something called central precocious puberty, and, and for um, um, excessive bleeding caused by fibroids, but it's not approved for this particular use. And as such, women aren't really able to get informed consent. We were just at a major infertility symposium at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta where some of the staff there are joining the voices of others who are calling for a better registry to be kept, better follow-up to be conducted, and actually in California right now there may be legislation calling for this very soon. This is another ad, Chinese donor hundred thousand dollars in negotiable. It's a lot of money. Um, the HPV vaccine, I just want to briefly say the media presented this as a matter of, you know, the conservative sort of anti-choice folks versus the liberal folks who were pro-medicine, and that is not uh, an adequate way to present the, the controversy around the HPV vaccine. The big controversy, which should have gotten better attention, was around whether or not there should ever have been school mandates. Some states did pass these mandates. They've all been rescinded, as far as I know. The Centers for Disease Control never recommended that there be mandates. This is not a highly contagious 
disease for which you need immediate herd immunity. Uh, you could roll this out like you would any vaccine, and all of these distinctions were generally avoid, uh, uh, ignored by the media. Um, it's very expensive as well, and, and people were concerned about jeopardizing existing cervical cancer screening programs if the money got taken from pap tests that should be performed and still have to be performed because the vaccine only addresses two types of the HPV, human papillomavirus, that cause 70% of cervical cancer. So what about the other 30%? Well, you gotta do your pap tests and you have to have um, treatment if needed early on so that you don't get cervical cancer from some of the other types of HPV. So you don't do anything differently, but if you aren't thinking as a, as a system as a whole and making sure you've got the money Making sure, for example, that you don't push the drug company to come out with a public sector price that's reasonable. There's no way the public sector should have paid the kind of money that Merck was asking for. Some economists pointed out that for $60 for a set of three shots, they could recoup their R&D, their research and development costs. What they couldn't do was make tons of money to cover all the Vioxx lawsuits. So the HPV vaccine has been a, a, a big boom it's been a lifesaver for Merck. And they have some great scientists there. And I have to say that one of the lead scientists for them works out of the University of New Mexico. She's very proud of this accomplishment. She was uh, the PI for a lot of the clinical trials later on and was very impressed. But she was deeply distressed by the advertising campaign, which she thought was fear-mongering and its worst, that it really um, did not present a balanced picture of HPV and cervical cancer. It's not one of the most life-threatening um, cancers. We, when we have pap tests universally um, utilized, we actually can bring, and we have follow-up treatment, we can really bring down mortality rates from cervical cancer very low. In Canada, a few hundred women um, in this whole year will die from cervical cancer because they do a better job of getting pap tests to everyone. In our country, where we'll have maybe 11,000 some odd cases, give or take some, we expect maybe 3,700 deaths in the whole country, and we have 300 plus million people now. Um, think about all the other cancers killing tens of thousands of people. This is um, you know, not something that warrants the kind of advertising we've seen to make it look like it's so much more risky or more important than all the other things. Tobacco use and lung deaths from lung cancer, that's the biggest cancer killer of women. It's lung cancer and it's tobacco use, and that gets hardly any uh, media coverage. In fact, you'll see more product placement of tobacco use in movies and television shows than you would have, say, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and some of that comes because the manufacturers of these products give directors anywhere from $500,000 on up to place a cigarette in the hands of a, you know, a lead character, even when it wasn't in the original script. And it pays for a whole set, you know? Half a million dollars is a lot of money when you're producing a film. Uh, and there are movie magazines that actually describe these arrangements. This isn't something that um, I've made up. Um, I'm going to stop there, I think, because we're at the 2 o'clock mark, and some of you may have some questions. Um, I just want to show you some of the covers of the foreign language translation adaptations of Our Bodies, Ourselves. They're all at our website. Um, these groups in other countries have done an amazing job of taking this material, adapting it for their own use, and increasingly we're going to be putting um, um, their material at our website. The Russian edition is electronically available worldwide. They did not produce a hard copy edition because paper's too expensive and people don't have money to buy books for the most part in Russia right now. 
This is what our bodies and cells looked like in 1971. This is the March 71 printing. In December of 70, it was called Women and Their Bodies. And this is eight editions later, the, the hot pink cover and the book that um, is used by a lot of women's studies programs. This is the new menopause book that came out a couple years ago. And this book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, Pregnancy and Birth, just got nominated um, as a finalist in the, in the wellness category and the books for better living, you know, to do, they do in New York City every February. So we may get a big award in February and we're um, very proud of the team that worked on this book because it is uh, a great antidote to the fear-based approach and it's got great information, great stories and the website that goes with it um, has got lots of free information as well. So I know some of you have to go, um, but if you want to ask questions, I'll stay for a little bit.